Would you be shocked if I told you that one in three women and one in four men have been slapped, shoved, pushed, or worse by an intimate partner? What if I told you that in the U.S., over 50% of all homicides are domestic violence related? That's why when someone is murdered, police naturally look at the people they're involved with, the people that are in their lives. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, licensed private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another set of captivating true crime stories where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening to me right now, I believe that you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is season four, episode 37. Since October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we're going to be investigating cases where people who were supposed to shower someone with love did just the opposite. I know that we've all heard stories of women who, after years of abuse, killed the husband or boyfriend who had terrorized them. But we don't often hear stories of men who fight back after years of abuse from their wives or girlfriends. We're going to look into stories just like that today. And I want us to stop and think if men are treated differently from women or if the circumstances of each case is what makes some of the sentencing differences what they are. I think you'll be fascinated to see how different things are in each of these three stories. According to the ACLU, the average prison sentence for men who kill their female partners is two to six years. Women who kill their partners are sentenced on average to 15 years. Of course, no one deserves to be abused. So I don't want to put any kind of idea out there that anybody in these stories deserved what they got or that anybody who fought back was definitely without any blame. These are very complicated situations. So I want to dive into them, look at what's different, and see if people are getting treated fairly based on the facts of each case. Six years ago in Tennessee, Brian Stephen Lawson shot his wife Beth to death in their home. He did it right in front of their two-and-a-half-year-old son. They had put cameras up in the home after they'd been robbed, and these cameras captured Beth striking her husband in the head multiple times before he shot her. She also threatened him with a baseball bat. Video shows Brian retrieving a gun when Beth left the room. After he killed her, he did call 911 and admitted what he'd done. He was charged with first-degree murder, but he did agree to plead guilty to reckless endangerment and voluntary manslaughter. He was given a sentence of 15 years. But, interestingly, both sides agreed that he would become eligible for parole after serving just 20% of his sentence. Now that means Beth's family understood that this was a very difficult case. They didn't lay all of the blame at Brian's feet. The camera system that had been set up in their home captured more than just the killing. It caught weeks of Beth's abuse of her husband as well as her drug abuse. Brian had called the police before but he had never gone so far as to file a complaint, which is not at all unusual for victims of domestic abuse. And I'm not blaming him for not taking that step, but it does make you wonder 
would things have turned out differently if he had? He claimed that he'd tried to leave Beth before and didn't when she said she would commit suicide if he did. Now, without the security camera footage that showed the reality and the totality of what happened, Brian would likely have been sentenced to decades in prison. I couldn't find any recent news regarding his status, and the Tennessee Department of Correction Felony Offender Information Search was not responding to the many attempts I made to see if Brian was still incarcerated. So many lives were changed forever by what happened that day. And again, I'm not blaming Brian. He may have felt like he had no other choice if he wanted to stay safe. Our next story tells the tale of Kim Dadao. She was arrested in December of 1991 after her boyfriend, Darnell Sanders' frozen body was found in a snowbank. They'd been together for over four years, and she'd gotten used to his violence against her. He'd been arrested five times for attacking her, and she'd tried to get a restraining order against him. But despite the fact that she had multiple stab wounds and a punctured lung from his attacks, he'd convinced authorities that she was the violent partner. One night, as he tried to sexually assault and strangle her, she grabbed his gun and shot him. Even though it appeared to be in self-defense, Kim was charged with second-degree murder. On the advice of her attorney, she did not testify in her own defense. And unfortunately, that resulted in key evidence showing Darnell's history of abuse being ruled inadmissible. Kim was convicted and served 17 years in prison. After her release, she began advocating for different sentencing for abuse victims who kill their abusers in self-defense. She helped ensure the passage of New York's Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. This law allows sentencing courts to actually resentence a domestic violence survivor who suffered abuse that contributed to their conviction if those circumstances meet a certain criteria. Kim also participated in the creation of the documentary film and so I stayed. This award-winning film is the story of how the legal system often deals with domestic violence in ways that maybe don't really fit the situation. I love what the website for the documentary says. This film is made for and by survivors, for them slash us to feel heard, seen, and believed. Our third case this week is that of Marissa Alexander, and it's one that, again, shows just how complicated and nuanced these cases can be. Marissa was prosecuted for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in Florida in 2012. Marissa was at her estranged husband's home when she says he threatened to kill her. Since he'd been abusive in the past, she had no reason not to believe him. She tried to escape through the garage, but the door wouldn't open. She took her gun and fired a warning shot, believing that Florida's laws on self-defense justified her doing that to protect herself. No one was injured, but Marissa was sentenced to serve 20 years in prison anyway. I will admit that out of our three stories today, this may be the most complicated situation. In addition to being a victim of abuse, Marissa had recently been released from jail after assaulting a different man, the father of her child. And she should not have been at Gray's house because he had an order of protection against her. 
prosecutors offered her a plea deal that would have had her serve just three years in jail. Marissa refused to take it, believing that she was justified because she'd been acting in self-defense. Her jury disagreed and only deliberated for 12 minutes before finding her guilty. An appellate court ordered a new trial for Marissa due to improper jury instructions. She was released on house arrest in November of 2013. Prosecutors publicly stated that they would retry her, and this time they were going to aim for three consecutive 20-year sentences. In January of 2015, Marissa accepted a plea deal of time served so that she could be released from prison. Her case helped inspire a new state law permitting warning shots in some circumstances. And I don't want you to think that I think that that's always the best idea or approach. In part due to Marissa's case, the organization Survived and Punished was created with a goal to eliminate heavy-handed sentences for victims of abuse who defended themselves from their attacker. I think it's worth noting here that victims of assault are estimated to comprise almost 90% of women in United States prisons. Most are arrested for defending themselves from domestic and intimate partner violence. Each of these cases is heartbreaking in their own way, but no more so than the millions of others that you will never hear about. Yes, I said millions. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline website, more than 12 million women and men over the course of a single year are victims of rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. That is an average of 24 people per minute. I'm going to say that again because it's stunning. That's an average of 24 people per minute who are victims of rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. And two-thirds of female stalking victims were stalked by current or former intimate partners. You do have the occasional unbalanced person that comes out of nowhere as a stalker, but typically that's not the case. It's people who are trying to get away from an abusive partner who just will not let go. And of course, like any crime, the fallout from this spreads to other people like ripples in a pond. Loved ones of these victims often feel helpless and frightened, just like the victims do. Imagine how a child feels when they're caught up in a situation of domestic violence, and they not only love the victim, but they may love the abuser. Imagine how parents feel when their adult children are being abused, and they feel powerless to help. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can each do something to stand up and help victims of domestic violence. I've put several links in the show notes so that you can get more information on what you can do to help. And we have a wonderful sponsor of the podcast this month, Safe Haven Services. I want you to check out what they do. I've got that link in the show notes as well. And be looking on my website for a blog that's going to be coming out explaining what they do and how you can help. The Bible verse I chose for this episode is from Proverbs chapter 20 and it's verse 10. I'm going to read from the God's Word translation. A double standard of weights and measures. 
Both are disgusting to the Lord. I love that plain, very visceral language of this translation because I believe that it shows us so clearly how much God hates corruption and favoritism. Not all of these victims were treated in accordance to the facts of the situation. People had agendas. There are inherent biases in how men and women are treated in these situations. And you've taken the first step toward helping. You've listened to this and you've educated yourself on what some of the problems are. And I think we all in our lives have opportunities to speak out against unfairness when we see it. And I hope that you will be looking for opportunities to stand up and help a victim of domestic violence. Not all of them are going to admit that this is an issue they're struggling with. But if you suspect something, just make sure that that person knows that you are a safe person to talk to. You don't need to fix their problem. You just need to listen. And then you can tell them, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I will help you find it. Just imagine if someone you loved was in this situation, you would move heaven and earth to help them. So find someone in your circle. If you don't have a loved one that is struggling in this area, find someone in your circle, someone in your neighborhood, someone at work, Someone, maybe a mom or a dad of your kid's friends, someone from church, whoever it might be, reach out, be that safe person. Let them know that they are not alone. I want to know what you think of this episode and this topic that we are covering of domestic violence. Send me an email at Lori, that's L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com Or you can message me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook at The Unlovely Truth. You can look up Lori Morrison on LinkedIn and The Unlovely Truth on LinkedIn. And you can find me on Instagram at The Unlovely Truth Podcast. I love it when people are willing to dig in and have hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.